from the Gospel of Mark. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. You know, one of the most difficult things about preaching is when you're uh, working on the text and you're trying to come up with an illustration that kind of captures what was going on then in modern day times. And so when we read our gospel today, Jesus warns people to beware of those who walk around in long robes, right, and to sit at the best places in the synagogue. And I could not for the life of me think of what he's talking about. What do you think, Father? I got nothing. nothing. All right, so we're going to move past that. Um, Oh, come on, you're all thinking it, right? But, but I do want to go ahead and address the liturgical elephant in the room, uh, and then we're going to move back into our text. Uh, so when Jesus is talking about these scribes, right, these devourers of widows' houses, these flowing robes that he mentioned were likely um, this, this uh, liturgical vestment called a talith. And a talith was a prayer shawl, and it was to be used only in the context of worship, Right? And so what it sounds like Jesus is saying that these scribes were doing is they thought they would look pretty cool walking around town in their liturgical vestments, getting greetings from everyone, you know, taking an object that was meant to glorify God and to glorify themselves. Now, I'm going to be honest to you, um, in today's day and age, I don't think I would look pretty cool if I walked out of church this morning and went to Publix just as I am, would I? Probably not. They'd say, you know, Halloween was a week ago, guy, and it'd be like, well, long story. Um, So again, it doesn't translate very well. But then the second thing that Jesus says, in the best seats in the synagogue, well, the best seats in the synagogue, and it was, synagogues were structured kind of like our church, Um, but instead of having um, the sacrament, um, they had these scrolls, like biblical scrolls that were up against the back wall. And then they had two seats that were placed right up against the back wall facing out towards the congregation called the seats of Moses, and this is where, you know, the scribes wanted to sit. You know, why would you want to sit in this place of honor where you're standing out here and, you know, looking out at everyone? It's a place of importance, right? Everybody, look at me. Don't look past me to Christ. Don't look past me to God. Like, look at me. I'm in front of you. Um, Which, by the way, have you ever been to a church where some churches still do that? Christian churches put their seats behind the altar looking out. Um, that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, that he mentions, he says, you know, and their long prayers, right? Well, their long prayers, and I don't know if you know anyone who's prayed like this, but they were much more directed to the people listening than they were to God. Does anybody know anybody who's just been up there and be like, oh Lord, and then they'll go on for like five, and it's you know, the most eloquent thing you've ever heard, and at the end you're wondering like who they're, who they're praying to. Um, and that's what they would do. Now, we're really fortunate because our liturgy helps mitigate this problem a lot. You know, we read prayers. You know, 99% of the prayers that you're going to hear today are things that other people have written that are from us collectively to the Lord. So, and, and, and the reason that we do that, again, is, is the prayer life that we have, the things that we wear, the things that we do, they're not about taking credit or glory from, uh, for ourselves. It's about bringing glory to God. In fact, that's one of the reasons that Father Chris offers his liturgical minute. It's a reminder that everything that we're doing, you and me, is to glorify God and God alone. And these roles that we take on are kind of to depersonalize ourselves so that we're not a distraction from the reason that we're here, the God that we're here to worship. So to end this liturgical point, 
you know, as soon as a Sunday morning becomes about Father Chris or Father Robert or Father Josh, something's gone terribly wrong. Would we agree with that? Great. Okay. So that was a long explanation, but you know what? I'm going to count it as a sermon point. There's your liturgical minute sermon point for today. Uh, but you're still going to get three more. So, I mean, um, so I want to do three points from our text today from our gospel. And, and these are the three points. Ready? The swindling of the scribes, the contributions of the crowd, and the offering of the widow. Swindling of the scribes, contribution of the crowd, and the offering of the widow. So let's look at point one, the swindling of the uh, scribes. If you've got your uh, bulletins and you want to look at your text with me, uh, in this chapter in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been walking around the temple courts, and he's been engaging these different groups uh, in conversation. You know, some of the, some, the Pharisees came up, and they tried to trap Jesus with a question, and he answered him and moved on. And the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with a question, he answered him and moved on. And by this time, Jesus has kind of gathered a crowd around him, hasn't he? Like, who's this guy? He knows what he's talking about. And he takes this crowd, and he points out these scribes, and he says, these self-important Jim and Tammy Faye Baker fakers of religion, right? Some of you know. I had to look it up. Um, watch out for them. Watch out for them. They don't have your best interests in mind. They don't have your best interests at heart. They're about themselves. And you know, I actually wasn't going to spend too much time on this in the sermon because, well, you would think that false piety and money grubbing, money grubbing would be obvious, wouldn't it? You know, how, how, I would never be fooled by that, but you know what? Well-meaning people get duped by this all the time. You know, the anniversary of the Reformation was just this past Sunday, and one of the, one of the sparks that led to the Reformation was this charlatan, you guys know the story, right? The charlatan named Tetzel. And he had twisted the meaning of indulgences, and he started trying to sell them to people as kind of a get-out-of-purgatory-and-into-heaven-free card, right? I mean, the modern-day equivalent would be if I opened up all of my Monopoly boxes and tried to sell you the get-out-of-jail-free card at 20 bucks a pop, right? Trust me, this is good insurance. Which, by the way, I looked that up too, and somebody has actually tried. Didn't work. Um, but again, just duping and swindling people. And again, I'm too young to remember the height of televangelism, but I do know a few years ago, Jesse Duplantis said he needed $54 million for a jet to spread the gospel. His other jets wouldn't do. I mean, he had plenty. But this one could get him where he wanted to the other place without stopping for gas. This was the one he needed. And Kenneth Copeland says that he needs his fleet of jets because every time he goes coach, there's just so many demons inside the plane that they're trying to distract him from the gospel. Yeah, right? And you know, you and I might think that we would never fall for something that ridiculous, but when people are desperate, like the widows in our text, all it takes is a little bit of charm, a little bit of hope, the promise of simple solutions for complex problems. And that's it. So Jesus' first teaching to them at this time is He says, you know, be wary of those who seek their own glory. Be wary of those who live as though it is better to receive than to give. And that brings us to our second point, the contributions of the crowd. Uh, let's look back at our text. Um, again, Jesus is walking on this temple court, and after this warning, he sits down and he engages in, you know, the ancient practice of people watching. Right? You ever do that? You go out and you sit on a park bench, you just kind of watch who goes by. 
We used to, you know, go to malls before Amazon, do the same thing there. You know, an opposite of Jesus, as he's sitting down, there are these 13 offering boxes that are shaped like trumpets. You know, they had a, they had a, you know, was it the flange at the top and then, and, you know, a narrow chute and then the uh, space at the bottom. And uh, these are the, the places where people would deposit their tithes and their offerings. So point number when you give, Jesus is watching. I'm kidding. That's not the point of the text, all right? Um, God's always watching, and that is true, but that's not the point Jesus is trying to make. Um, but Jesus is sitting here, and he's looking at these trumpet-shaped offering boxes, and as you can imagine, in that day and age, you didn't have paper money, right? You didn't have credit cards. You didn't have those offering envelopes, you know, that we pass around, so it's, you know, it's kind of just, you know, it's between you and the Lord. And, you, you know, you had these trumpet-shaped boxes that were designed to make sound. And you had people walking around with heavy coins in their robes. And you can imagine, if you want to make a show of it, you can make a decent amount of sound as you contribute your offering, can't you? Walk around, you know, maybe just jingling a little bit. You figure out the practice of making it look, you know, natural, and then you get to it, and you take all your heavy coins, and you, you know, throw them in there, and you know, maybe you plink them one at a time just to get the full effect, right? And so Jesus is watching all of these people contributing these, um, these coins and, and seeing, you know, again, if you have the means, you can appear very generous without it costing you much of anything. And that's what Jesus means. He says, you know, these people, they're giving out of their abundance. Their giving wasn't going to affect their lifestyle. You think they're going to have to give up any of their streaming subscription services for their giving? No. It wasn't going to affect their lifestyle. They weren't going to have to make sacrifices or cut back or do anything that might make life a little bit more difficult for them. I mean, their giving at this point had been, well, it would become perfunctory. And to be fair to the crowd, right, they weren't taking like the scribes. They weren't defrauding people. They weren't stealing. They were actually contributing. And in all likelihood, they were giving the full tithe, 10% of their income. The full tithe. They were following the letter of the law. They were making their contribution. But in doing so, in finding a minimum and sticking with the minimum, their giving had become, as I said, perfunctory and mechanical because their hearts weren't in it. And there's an attitude here of, God, you can have this much, but no more. God, I'll give you this much. This is what I'll give you. you know, like, like this, is, this is my limit, but no more. Don't take anything else from me. No, thank you very much. I'll draw the line, and you can have what's, what's on this side. This is what you have claimed to, Lord, but this is what I have claimed to, and so let's make sure that we know where that line is and we each stay on our side of it. And, you know, and the danger of that, the danger of living that way is that even those who are good rule followers, who are obedient and can follow the letter of the law, can miss out on what God really wants from us. That's the danger of drawing these barriers. You can miss out on what God really wants for us. You know, when Amy and I got married, uh, before I was a priest, uh, we decided to take a Christian cl class on how to manage our finances. Now, my wife is a controller. That's her job title. I'm not, 
That's an easy joke I'm not going to make. It's a trap. I'm not walking into it. But that's her job. She works with finances. And anyway, as long as I've known her, she's been, as long as I've known her, she's been very good with money, very responsible. And at the time we got married, I was, well, not that, right? I was kind of the opposite of that. I didn't have much money to begin with, right? I was a seminarian. I was working several jobs part-time, and um, we were making very little money, but we were taught as we are taking these classes the importance of giving 10% of our income. And we're like, 10% of $28,000 is not a lot of money, but it's a lot to me. How about, how about after seminary, when I get a job? Lord, how about when we get out of debt? That seems like a good time to start giving, right? Like, how about when we get some things in place, and we've kind of established ourselves, and then we can kind of look at what we can do? Teacher didn't let me off the hook. He's like, no, now's the time. 10%. And it hurt, right? It hurt. But, you know, given enough time, you can adapt to anything. And we did. We adapted to giving to 10%. And then, we were taught to give beyond that. And that's when things started to get a little scary for me. We were taught to give to whatever ministries or situations that God presented us with. And, um, I'll speak for me personally, that's when alarm bells started going off. That's when I started to panic because, you know, if you're, if you're to give anything that God might present to you, well, there's not really a boundary line you can draw, is there? There's really no limit to what God can ask of you. And you start to realize, you know, as you're standing there, this is exactly how I felt. I had this safety box of this minimum, you know, that I was kind of resting my back against, but then in front of me, I had this unlimited amount that God may ask from me. And it's, it, was a, it was a terrifying place to be, you know, because if you understand the implications, if you sit in that long enough, then you realize well, you start to ask, Lord, what do you want from me? Isn't this enough? Lord, what do you want from me? But the amazing part about being in that place is that that's when God looks at you and he answers in you and he says, you. I want you. It's not about your stuff. It's not about limits that you place on your time or your interests, your involvement, or your giving. God doesn't need our stuff. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It's all His. Anything we give Him is His anyway. It's not about that. What God wants is us. Stripped away from everything else. He wants us stripped away from the boundaries that we like to put around our time, right? Like, God, I'll give you an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and that is it. He wants us to be stripped away from the boundaries we put around our money. God, here's your 10%. I'm done for today. Thank you. He wants us stripped away from the boundaries that we might put around our prayer life, right? Like, oh God, I'll pray before meals. You know, I'll pray before I go to bed. But, you know, this is what you get, right? This is your time. The rest is my time. He wants all of those boundaries to be stripped away from us. He wants to get rid of all of the ways that we try to hide ourselves from God or have a managed relationship with Him or keep Him at arm's length. I mean, have you ever wondered why we do that? Have you ever wondered why we create all these structures and boundaries and safety places that we can kind of keep God from having the fullness of us and experiencing the fullness of Him? Why do you think we do that? 
you know, some people might say, well, you know, it's apathy. Some people might say, well, you know, we have greedy hearts, but I don't, I'm not so sure that's what it is. I think we try to keep God at arm's length because we just don't trust him. We either don't trust that God loves us as much as he says he does, or that God could love us when we feel unlovable, or we don't trust that he's enough for us. When God offers himself to us, we don't trust that that's actually going to be enough for us. Which brings us to our third and final point, the offering of the widow. Let's take a final look at our text. Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's people watching, and then he notices this widow. This is obviously someone who's very poor, of little account that everyone else would overlook. She's wholly unremarkable. And then he says to his disciples, he says, hey guys, come here, I want to show you something. And he pulls his disciples to himself and he sits them down and he says, you know, pay attention. Look at this one right here. Everyone else is giving, and that's great, but they're giving out of their abundance. He says, this one has given everything. And the word that Jesus has used, there's a lot of ways he could have said this in Greek. The word that Jesus uses in Greek is bios. We get the word biology, life. Look at this one. She's given her very life. You know, what the disciples don't know is that this is actually going to be the last lesson that Jesus imparts to them as part of his public ministry. Because in the very next chapter of Mark, Mark 14, things start to move very quickly. The passion narrative begins. There's a plot to kill Jesus. He's betrayed, he's arrested, he's flogged, and he's crucified. He's raised up before the disciples and the whole world as the one who gave his own life for the ransom of many. And what the disciples don't know as Jesus is sharing with them about the, the offering of the life of this widow is they don't know that almost to a man, they are going to be called to follow in his footsteps. Almost to a man. They're going to be called to give their own lives for the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel. You know, we, sometimes we read this widow's mite story as kind of this heartwarming story of generosity, but the reality is it's actually a pretty sobering lesson. But Christians, that's the call. You know, at your baptism, right, when you're, you know, either held underwater or even water poured over you, you're declared dead to the world so that you could receive the life that is found in Christ Jesus. And once you get that, once you understand the fullness of life that God is offering to you, once you start to tear down those barriers that have kept you from experiencing the presence of God and learning to trust Him, well, there's nothing like it. Does He love us? Enough to die for us. Is He enough for us? Well, well let me put it to you this way. Our capacity for love is about the size of a thimble. And the measure of love that God would pour out onto us is as vast as the ocean. Is he enough for us? So let me just encourage you this morning. Give some real thoughts to the areas of your lives around which you have put limits that you have placed on your relationship with God. Think about the boundaries, the places that you would like to keep God in a box or keep him comfortable or keep him at arm's length to maintain that distance between him and you. And I would invite you to tear it all down. 
Offer yourselves to him fully as his own and receive that love of his. Invite him in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your call for us is so much greater, I think, than uh, we know or are willing to know. And um, for myself, God, I can be so fearful of the world and the light that you would call me into. For the things that you would ask of me and the things that you would present to me, but please, um, God, expand all of our hearts to uh, trust you and to invite you in knowing that you care for us and that you are enough for us. Help us to experience the fullness of your love and your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.